0: And struggle most with like what I'm preaching on, and maybe that makes sense. You know, I'm I'm really digging into it and and struggling with it. And today we're we're talking about having childlike faith in Christ. Kids can can head on downstairs, Avery and and preschool and four and under can go on down. <coughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. So today we're we're talking about having having childlike faith uh, in Christ and. And that means, you know, as we as we trust in Christ for salvation, but also us who are already followers of Christ in following Him and what He has called us to do. Um, and for like, you know, th- this week I felt a you know, just humility um, in in preparing this, um, and I, and I hope that you know, in studying it, and as we as we talk about it today, um, that He He works this in our in our hearts to to change that into into childlike faith. Uh, but also as I was uh, preparing for this, I, w- I was thinking about, you know, often we have, you know, references to children um, in, in sermons and, and illustrations. Um, and, and thinking about how Jesus uh, treats these kids uh, in this passage today. Um, and, and often how um, in, in our sermons, you know, we're referring to more their their disobedience. Um, and we kind of use that to compare to ourselves so that we can point out our own Sinful nature and disobedience, um, and and illustrate that with, you know, the the obvious example of disobedient children. Um, and referring to someone or something as being childish typically has that negative connotation to it. So, like for example, like guys, when your wife uh, is saying to to you that you're you're acting like a child, that's that's not a compliment. That's not saying that you're you're being cute and innocent. Uh, that's not what she means. <laughs> Um, she's probably referring to some dumb immature thing that you're doing um, you know I'm sure you can hear her, like telling you to, to stop yelling at the TV, it's just just a game or like asking you how much longer you're gonna be playing your video game or do we really need to spend our money on this expensive man child toy um, and yeah for, for us as guys it, it can be hard to, to let go and, and to grow up uh, we, we want to you know continue being kind of childish um, but uh, for those of us with small children, it's easy to, to use our kids as an example, to, to point out their disobedience and compare it to, to our own self-centered behavior and overall sin nature, um, and use that as an illustration. Um, you could say that kids you know, haven't learned to behave, so you know, that's you know, part of parenting and disciplining them. Um, they haven't learned that yet, or you know, maybe they, they haven't learned to hide it as well as, as we do. Uh, we, we try hard, but we still really, deep down, act like children a lot of the time. Um, so that's maybe why like, using them as an illustration works so well, uh, because we really are much more like disobedient children uh, than we co- often care to admit. Uh, there is a difference, though, in, in being childish and childlike, like we're referring to today, uh, especially when we're referring to faith in our relationship with God and trust in Him. Some people may say that they don't really see a serious need in studying Scripture uh, to grow, grow their faith. Uh, they, they want to preserve this, this childlike spirit uh, and to you know, just keep their faith simple. Uh, but I think these people would have their, their terminology incorrect. They're, they're seeking more of that, that childish faith rather than this childlike faith. Uh, R.C. Sproul once said, uh, Being childlike means at certain points we are called to resemble children just as the way the young child has almost absolute blind confidence and faith in his parents. and In an ideal parent-child relationship, for the most part, the child trusts in the parent that they know what they're doing and are looking out for, for their needs. Avery doesn't have to, to balance our budget so that, to make sure that we're spending our money in the right places. If she did, we would have a, a lot more um, unicorn decor in our house, I'm sure. Um, Caleb doesn't have to go grocery shopping to put food on the table. If he did, we we eat chocolate pop tarts every every night for dinner. He's in love with those things right now. <clears throat> um, instead, they, they can rest in knowing that that we will meet their needs and we do these things for them, even if they, they don't always agree. I think like deep down, they they trust in us and know that you know we're what we're doing, some of the time at least. Um, and it's it's the same in our relationship to God. If we rest and trust in Him to meet our needs and equip us for what He's called us to do. Our lives will be filled with joy. John 10.10 10 says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. At the, at the beginning of this passage, we see some, some disobedient children. And a group of actual kids who just want to be near to Jesus. And if you, you know if you didn't catch that, the, the disciples are being kind of disobedient children, and this rich young ruler also kind of acting like a, a child. Um <clears throat> these kids like you know they don't have any of their own accomplishments or possessions or high status or or pride coming between them and christ they're simply enjoying jesus presence despite being treated you know with very little value by many other adults of their time uh, in judaism at the time children were cherished but in the in the society as a whole, children were viewed as kind of negligible um, and more of a, a liability until they were able to actually contribute to society themselves. Uh, these kids have, have done nothing to earn this intimate time with the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of Man, the Word who was with God and was God. But he accepts them to come before himself in love. In a, in a sermon by John MacArthur he says children serve as an apt illustration of those who enter into the kingdom and receive its blessing because they can do nothing to earn it let me say that again children serve as an apt illustration of the of those who enter into the kingdom and receive its blessing because they can do nothing to earn it just as these kids have contributed nothing and done nothing to deserve this love and attention so, so have we also done nothing to deserve the love and grace that we have through Christ. And not only do, do we, have we done nothing to deserve it, there is still nothing that we can do to deserve it or earn it or, or pay him back for that debt. Um, John Piper recently said, Don't think of your obedience to God as a payback for grace, but as more grace. There is no payback for grace. We go deeper and deeper. Into glorious debt forever. So, what does this really look like in our lives to us to receive the kingdom of God like a little child? Uh, Before we go further into the passage and and try to answer this question, let's let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I thank you for for this word and for bringing us here um, to study it freely. Um, Lord, I pray that you speak to us through this word. Lord, stir in our hearts the need to uh, let go of ourselves and our pride, um, and Lord, just submit to you fully with a childlike faith. Um, Lord, I pray that that this just speaks to our hearts and changes it this morning. In your name we pray, amen. So now let me uh, reread verses 13 through 16 uh, real quick, so it'll be just fresh on our minds. As they were bringing children to him, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So at the start of this passage, we see people bringing children. Uh, to him in order that he might touch them. And as we've seen, Jesus often touched people to heal them, um, even those who no one else would even want to go near because of their sickness, maybe like leprosy or something like that. Um, Others would seek out Jesus in thick crowds just to get a chance to touch him as he went by. So here we have parents and families, maybe some friends, uh, trying to get these kids just up close to Jesus so that he can touch them and bless them. And it was Customary at the time for children to be brought to, to rabbis or elders uh, to be blessed by laying on of hands, uh, kind of like we do like when we're praying over someone. We did that just a, a few weeks ago um, over Ethan uh, as, we, as we prayed over him and commissioned him as an elder of the church. Um, you know, we don't believe, you know, as Christians or elders that we have any particular power in that laying on of hands, um, it's more of just a, a specific prayer and like setting apart uh, for Christ. Uh, But Jesus, however, does demonstrate power throughout the Gospels over sickness and death, demons, wind and the waves, and ultimately over sin and Satan. We're not told that this is why people were bringing these kids to him. Uh, There's no mention that these kids have any sickness or need of healing. So, So this act of bringing children to him wouldn't have been particularly unusual, but the disciples, for one reason or another, Felt that you know this wasn't the appropriate time. That uh, so they they rebuked the people. They, maybe they had a little pride going to their head, uh, and they felt that you know they didn't have time to stop simply to have some kids come to Jesus. After all, he you know he has lots of people that want to see him. Uh, you know maybe they're starting to feel like they're kind of his political handlers, you know his secret service, and they've got to move him on to something more important. Uh, but they they must be forgetting that. Time kind of tends to be irrelevant when you're traveling with the Son of God, who was present at the creation of the universe. Um, on another occasion, recorded in, in three of the Gospels, and as you may remember from Mark 5, uh, a synagogue leader was trying to get Jesus to come to his house uh, to heal his dying daughter. Um, and on the way, Jesus kept stopping to heal other people, um, and he before, he, before arriving there, uh, someone from the house sent, sent someone out to tell him that it was, it was too late. Uh, but Jesus' response to this was, Don't be afraid. Only believe, and she will be saved. And they laughed at him. But he continued on to the house and raised the girl back to life. Jesus had time to spare, even for the seemingly most insignificant, like this little girl, so so what was Jesus' response to the disciples here when they're turning away these kids? It says Jesus was indignant. Indignant implies anger and annoyance. Uh, now this is righteous anger. Um, there's, he's in no way at fault here, as Jesus never is. Uh, but we often place this kind of ethereal voice on Jesus in our heads. Um, like he's just always, you know, you know, very calm, and I'm sure he's calm. He didn't let his anger lead him to sin. Uh, but he's not saying, let, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. He's he's indignant. He treats this mistake very seriously. Let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. And he goes on and his reasoning is this, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So, What does this mean? Does he mean that he knows that these specific children will have faith in him and inherit the kingdom of God? I don't think that's quite what he's saying uh, because he goes on to say, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. He's saying that this is the kind of childlike faith and humility that he finds acceptable. Again, we aren't, we aren't called to have a simplistic, uninformed faith, but an absolute trust in our Heavenly Father. In reality, the, the greater your knowledge and understanding of God's ultimate power and His unlimited and your undeserved love from Him, the more childlike your faith and your acceptance of his authority will be. The more that you realize how utterly doomed you are if you're relying on your own merits, the more you will see your need to submit to him completely. Now, speaking of childish faith and the inability to submit everything over to Christ, we have this rich young ruler from the second portion of our passage. Uh, So let's take a look back at uh, verses 17 through 22. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother, he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So this man approaches Jesus here, and we often call him the rich young ruler, Uh, this may be even like the, the heading uh, at the top of this section in your Bible, depending on your translation, may differ a little bit. Um, we f- refer to him this way in combining this account from the three different Gospels, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, it's not recounted in, in John. All three do in fact note that he is rich. Uh, Matthew mentions him being young, and Luke calls him a ruler. And I say all this so that we can have kind of a better picture, a clearer picture of who Jesus is talking to here. Um, now, we don't know for sure how he came by his riches exactly um, or what he was ruler of, uh, but we can, can speculate a little bit. If he was a Jewish man, uh, he, he likely didn't have this authority as you know, part of a, like a political thing because you know, they were under uh, Roman rule at the time. So his authority might have been as a, as a religious leader in a synagogue. He certainly seems to know the law uh, and says that he grew up following it. Uh, as, a, as a young man with apparent success and riches and some measure of authority, I would imagine that he's also carrying a fair amount of pride. Pride that ultimately prevents him from ad- admitting his need for a savior. As he approaches Jesus, it says that he ran up and knelt before him. So he started things off right, uh, despite his riches and status... He knew that Jesus was greater than himself. He must have been around to hear Jesus teaching and preaching because he's got this question burning in his soul uh, that he's got to have an answer for. So he's, he's seeking out Jesus and running after him and bowing before him. And that question is, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus doesn't immediately answer his question, but first focuses on the way the man addressed him. He asks, why do you call me good? And follows that up with what might be a reference to Psalms 14.3, which says, There is none who does good, not even one. Uh, and later, the Apostle Paul references uh, this, this verse and a few other Old Testament passages in Romans 3, 10-12, uh, through 12, which I think we've got a slide for, too, uh, which says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. So in this this question that Jesus poses, we, we can almost hear a similar question that Jesus had previously asked Peter when he said, who do you say that I am? So he's basically saying to this young man, you call me good, but no one is good but God. Who are you saying that I am? He then goes on to list the second half. Of the of the Ten Commandments, and you could say that Jesus is kind of actually maybe taking it easy on him here. Uh, the commandments that he listed are the ones that govern over how we relate to each other. Uh, the ones that even pagans occasionally get right. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. Uh, again, those are: do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, and honor your father and mother. Nearly all people would say that these are good rules to live by. Again, according to R.C. Sproul, he he said nothing about the first table of the Ten Commandments, those that govern how we relate to God, which commandments can be kept only by those whose hearts have been regenerated by God's Holy Spirit. The commandments that Jesus left out are about worshiping other gods and idols and taking the the Lord's name in pain and keeping the Sabbath holy. Person would have to be one of God's people for these to even be applicable to their life. So, in a way, Jesus is kind of giving him the easy ones to follow here. So, I can imagine this guy kind of being like, maybe I've got a chance then, um, which he does, but he's looking in the wrong place. He's looking to himself instead of to his chance, his Savior right before him. And up until this point, the young guy seemed really promising. Uh, he, he wants to know what it takes to enter into God's kingdom. And he's showing reverence to Jesus, unlike a lot of other religious leaders, like the Pharisees, uh, who hated him and were constantly trying to trap him in his words. Well, then here we go. His response is, Teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth. If I were having this conversation with this guy, I'd be like, Come on. You probably haven't kept half of these since you got up this morning. What are you talking about? That You've kept these since your youth. Um, While while he may have been around to hear Jesus teaching and preaching, he clearly doesn't seem like he was around during the Sermon on the Mount. Um, In that sermon, Jesus significantly raised the bar on these expectations compared to the Mosaic Law. You haven't committed adultery? Even looking at a woman with lust, you have committed adultery in your heart. You haven't murdered anybody lately? Even being angry at someone without just, righteous, godly cause you have committed murder in your heart. But that is not how Jesus responded. First it says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus knew the state of this man's heart. He is in no better or worse position than you or I before following Christ. Completely doomed and utterly deserving of the wrath of God. So yes, my first reaction is to hope that Jesus really puts him in his place, tells him how terrible he actually is, but that's not how he responds to him, and praise God that that's not how he responds to him or to us. As as Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So praise God that he responds to us in our sin, like he did to this man. He loved him. Jesus then tells the man in verse 21, "You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me." So is he is he telling him here that there really is a physical work that he can do to be saved? I don't I don't think that's what he's saying exactly. Um, that this isn't a universal prescription for getting to heaven by selling everything and living a life of poverty he's now pointing out to him kind of back to the other half of the commandments that he didn't list out. His, this man's money is his idol and his God. And then the sentence like, really comes to its point uh, in these last two words, follow me. In other words, submit yourself to me with childlike faith. Back in uh, Mark eight thirty-six, uh, Jesus said, For what is it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? If this man was the richest man on the planet at the time, that is all worth nothing compared to the salvation that he could have in Christ who is right there before him. This man thought that he had faith in God. He, according to himself, had been a strict follower of the law his whole life. He thought he had done the things he was supposed to do and abstained from the things he wasn't supposed to do. But in this way, his faith was legalistic and you might say childish, thinking that there was something that he could do to earn God's favor and enter into his kingdom. As a sinner, though he had plenty of money, he had an insurmountable debt to God and his righteousness. His wealth could never come close to paying off that debt. No amount of good deeds and law-following would ever pay off that debt. The answer to his debt problem was standing right here in front of him. But instead of placing a childlike faith and absolute trust in his would-be Savior, he walked away sorrowful. So how do we apply this rich young ruler's response to our lives? Even as followers of Christ, we sometimes struggle with responding similarly Jesus by trusting in our own ways instead of having a childlike faith where we know we have nothing aside from Christ putting your faith in what the world has to offer and what you can make from it will only put you in greater debt of sin our answer is Christ and having a childlike faith in him the only one who can save and putting away anything that is an obstacle to following wholeheartedly after him. So as I as I close today I'll have I've have one one final quote. The call to discipleship is a call to radical trust and commitment to Jesus. Let us pray. God I, I know that you have spoken to to me uh, through this word uh, Lord, I I have not had this childlike faith and you at, at all times. Um, I want to hold on to, to my own abilities, which do not measure up. Um, God, you, you have worked in my life in, in ways that I don't even understand. Lord, I pray that, that the people here can come to know that, um, and Lord, remind me and them what you can do, Lord, to save us. And, and to work through us to spread your kingdom to, here in St. Albans and in Vermont and in, in the world. Um, Lord, if, it, if it's left to up to us, we'll have big plans that, that will not pan out. Lord, I pray that you help us to trust in you uh, for this salvation, for this love that you have given us that we completely and utterly do not deserve. And Lord, I pray that we we can't keep that a secret. that it, it gives us such joy to know that we have this this love and salvation that, that we can't help but go tell everyone. even when we are disliked and hated. just give us that boldness to to have the love like you gave these children. in your name we pray. Amen. As we uh, as we uh, enter into a time uh, where we celebrate communion every week, uh, I, uh, a quick uh, story that I was reminded of uh, as Paul was preaching this morning. I uh, so recently I've been trying to teach Heidi to swim, uh, my four year old, and. Last year, she she had an incident where she fell in the pool, and so she's been a little a little bit uh, not just a little bit. She's been very very cautious around the water, and very scared. And uh, and there was a time fairly recently when I was trying to trying to teach.